The voice. River Radio. Of the Thames Valley. Paperback Writer. Hello, it's Turning Pages here on River Radio. We'll be discussing some great books and our favourite reads. Recommending some great Ukrainian reads for you. And we'll be talking about the romance of bookshops. Hello there, I'm Heather and you're listening to Turning Pages and Julian is joining me. So good morning, Julian. Good morning, Heather. Every week we aim to delight you with an eclectic mix of recommended books to enjoy from the latest bestsellers to our favourite classics. So if you love reading or you just want to make sure you know what's happening in the world of books, this is your programme and do tell your friends. Thank you for joining us. Indeed. And don't forget, we put this little uh, section on each week. Uh, If you're reading something really exciting this week and you want to share it with us, um, do do drop me a line. Um, You can send me an email at julian at river.radio and we'll be happy to include uh, your findings, your delights on a future programme. Absolutely. And as always, we've got a packed show for you this morning. Uh, First of all, with the tragic events of the war in Ukraine happening before our eyes, in solidarity to their plight, we thought we'd recommend some great Ukrainian books to read. And book lovers also love their bookshops, which is probably why bookshops appear in so many books. So we'll be exploring our favourites later in the show. And as always, we've been scouring the papers to spot interesting book news for you. So let's start with a quick roundup of what book stories have been in the news recently. So Julian, what have you spotted? Well, I spotted this this item um, in uh, the Times newspaper, and I thought it'd be uh, interesting to share with you. It's actually it's, it's a photographic book. It's a fabulous uh, book, um, and it's it's about um, sort of libraries and stroke bookshops um, around the world. And this one in particular that was featured was was in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it's just been uh, published. Um, uh, by um, Dishnalton, and it's called Temple of Books, um, and it features uh, some magnificent libraries from around the world. Um, libraries, um, of course, are so much more than just a collection of books. They are um, archives of knowledge and represent the society we live in, and it's worth visiting just to breathe in the knowledge and sit there and wonder. Mm-hmm. Now, the Temple of uh, Books celebrates the world's oldest and grandest shrines to the written uh, word, um, old and new, fabulous Baroque palaces to tiny, tiny micro libraries. Um, all a joy to behold. So it's a fabulous book to, to get hold of uh, and just for the pictures alone, but also as an inspiration for, for a holiday. Because, you know, if, if, if you've got a city with a fantastic library, then that means that city must well be worth visiting. Yes, we'll go off to New York in a couple of weeks' time. Ooh. And the Frick Library is up there mm. with... Uh, a must a must visit have you ever been i haven't no oh, oh right lovely it's set in set in a, well, i'm saying it's set in a house it's obviously massive house mm-hmm. uh, and uh just at the bottom of central park and it's it's just absolutely a joy to behold oh, so well gosh. worth a visit 
And if anybody's ever going to is, is going to visit Vienna, they should really go to what is now called the State Library, but it was in fact the the Emperor's Library, which is just on the other side of of um, the the Hofburg Palace. And that's an amazing Baroque wonder. Yeah, brilliant. So lots, lots, and lots. So I must get a copy of that book. Mm. So. Um, the Carnegie Prize, which is Britain's foremost children's book prize, has just unveiled its shortlist this year. And interestingly, it's covering war, death and racial oppression, which seems to suggest that fiction can really help young readers to make sense of events that they see on social media. And it's really difficult to um, protect children from seeing the horrors of, of the mm. world. They're all, aw- mm. all aware of it. Now, the Carnegie is judged by children's librarians, so they seldom feature the books by the sort of celebrities-turned-authors who Mm. dominate the bestsellers list. So it's always a really interesting list. And this year, six of the eight shortlisted books are based on harrowing real-life events. So they include The Crossing by Manjeet Mann, in which a girl from Dover befriends an Eritrean refugee. And it also includes Tsunami Girl, written by Julian Sedgwick and Chi Kutsuwada, and it's about a teenager caught up in the 2011 Japanese earthquake and the aftermath of that event. Mm-hmm. There's When the Sky Falls by Phil Earle, which is set during the Blitz. And then we have Sue Divin's novel, which is Guard Your Heart, and it explores the relationship between two teenagers, one a Catholic and one a Protestant, uh, living in uh, Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Mm -hmm. Alex Wheatley's Cain Warriors recounts the slave rebellion known as Tacky's War in 18th century Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And then we have Punching the Air by author Ibi Zaboy and poet Dr. Yusuf Salam. And it's the story of a 16-year-old boy in America imprisoned for a crime he didn't commit. And this is quite um, quite poignant because Salam himself was one of the Central Park Five who was wrongly convicted of raping a jogger in 1989. Oh, that'll be a powerful book. Mm, it will. And the shortlist is completed by two further books, um, Katia Balin's October, October, which is a coming-of-age story about a girl who lives in wild existence in the woods with her father. And the other one is Everyone Dies Famous in a Small Town, written by Bonnie Sue Hitchcock. And it's a series of short stories about young people across America. I've got to say, that's a great title. Mm, it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so the prize judges said that they hope the shortlist will excite, move and empower young readers. The winners will be announced on the 16th of June. So there's plenty of time there for all your youngsters to um, read and decide upon their favourites. Indeed, there is. Yes, plenty of time. And you'll be soon sitting in the garden in the sunshine and you'll be able to read your books there. Absolutely. And I've got a little piece here, which is um, the BBC's adaptation, recent adaptation of Adam Adam Kay's uh, This Is Going to Hurt. Um, wasn't without its critics. Um, so no wonder uh, that readers have decided to go back to the source material and to the book that inspired it all, which is good news. And in fact, um, as a result it's jumped back into the top 10 bestseller list over the past couple of weeks now the subtitle of the books is a secret diaries of a junior doctor and it's based on the diaries of of adams k that adam k kept during his six years of medical training yes two of our godchildren are actually um, junior doctors so Ah. uh, we did read that book with interest and i've got to say it's very funny and Mm -hmm. quite political 
Oh, right. Uh, but uh, definitely a great, a great one yeah. to read. So well worth reading. Yeah, yeah definitely. If not watching, definitely. yeah. So Joanne Harris, uh, who of course is the best-selling author um, of books including Chocolat, has just turned down an American publishing deal which is quite interesting. And the reason for that is because they wanted to edit her, the the words she chose, and in particular, the F word. So I'm not a fan of swearing, but Harris um, has declined the offer because she says, one, I don't use words accidentally, they matter. Mm. And two, I don't believe my use of the word harms anyone. I think this is really interesting because America mm. is becoming... Um, quite keen to um, to censor at the moment. Um, so it's a particularly thorny thorny issue at the heart of publishing, and I think one that's going to rumble on for many years. But the book was called is called A Narrow Door, and it's a psychological thriller, and the last of a trilogy that uh, Joanne Harris set and at St Oswald's Grammar School. So it will mm. be brilliant. She's a fantastic writer. Mm, she is. Mm. Um, and I agree that, um, you know, authors are, are wordsmiths. They do choose mm. words with care, don't they? Mm, they do. And it is, it's one of those, um, you, you don't know whether it is all of this woke business or if it's now um, companies being so sensitive, they think that they, you know, they may offend a reader, yes. so therefore they overreact. And, uh, you know, people are intelligent and they can decide for themselves. They don't have to be nannied all the way through through life. No. But on the other side, um, something very interesting, a very rare Jimi Hendrix lyric is is, is coming up for sale um, at a memorabilia store called Trax, um, where it was, uh, where they... uh, recently bought this uh, this lyric, uh, and it was in, in 1967, this, this is the story, two teenage girls went backstage at a, a, a Hendrix concert to ask for his autograph, but they didn't have any paper with them. They forgot to bring any paper, but of course, n- nobody would really think of t- taking a sheaf of paper with them. Anyway, Jimi Hendrix ripped a page out of, of his notebook, tore it in half, and signed both uh, both pieces for the friends and gave one to one and one to the other. Now, the the page had the lyrics to 51st Anniversary, which was released as the B-side to Purple Haze. Now, the friends drifted apart over the years, but one one of them um, found her her, a piece of paper with the signature on it and approached the auction house to sell the signature. Now, the the auctioneer um, decided that there must be the other half, so went to track it down and actually found it, which was great. So, with great Ingenuity. The two halves were put together with sellotape, uh, and uh, so we've now got the the signed sheet of lyrics, um, and it's expected to sell for a, a five figure sum. Now, apparently, Jimi Hendrix was known for keeping countless notebooks handy and scribbling down on any piece of paper he could find: hotel stationeries, um, cocktail napkins, or beer mats. Any piece of inspiration he got, he would scribble it down. And as we know, he died very, very young at the age of 27 in 1970. But his music is very powerful and still still plays on and on and on and enjoyed by generations. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. And hopefully it brought the two friends back together. Yes, exactly. That'd be lovely. Yeah. Yes. 
So Cal Flynn, author Cal Flynn, has just joined luminaries such as Zadie Smith, Sally Rooney and Simon Armitage as recipient of the Sunday Times Charlotte Aitken Young Writer of the Year Award. So congratulations, Cal Flynn. That's uh, that's fantastic. So her latest book is called Islands of Abandonment, Life in the Post-Human Landscape. And that was created following a worldwide search for sublime beauty. And she's found it in the most unlikely of places, including things like a slag heap in Scotland or a ship's graveyard in New York and numerous ghost villages. I don't know about you, but I love ghost villages. There is something mm. haunting about them, isn't yeah. it? So Cal is in her early 30s and she's an explorer of places abandoned by humans. And this is her second book, And her first book was a publication of a memoir and history of one of her ancestors who was a pioneer in colonial Australia. Uh And that Uh book was called Thicker Than Water. And that was shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize and the Wainwright Prize for writing on global conservation. So she's obviously a talented wordsmith and an author to follow. Indeed. Yes. No, that that sounds a very interesting book. Um, Just um, a, a, a a tinge of sadness here. Um, uh, Jan Pienkowski has died recently, and um, he was the illustrator and creator of uh, those much-loved books, um, Meg and Marg, and also The Haunted House. Um, he won the Kate Greenaway Prize twice and was awarded the Book Trust Lifetime Achievement Award in 2019. Um, he was most well-known for his bright primary colours and bold shapes, and also for his paper cutouts and um, often of frightening monsters. Yes. Now he was born in Poland and his childhood was interrupted like many of his generation by the Nazi invasion uh, of his country and his parents helped organize resistance groups um, before they had to go into hiding uh, and then managed to escape to England in 1946. So rest in peace Jan Pienkowski. Yes absolutely and Megan Mog is absolutely a much loved mm. book. Yes. And there was actually another death um, obituary in the uh, in the paper recently, which was Leslie Lonsdale Cooper, who died at the ripe old age of 97. And um, she was one of the translating team to the original French of Hergé's Adventures of Tintin. Tintin! <laughs> and of course, that's that comic strip that we all know and love. So uh, the two people who translated them was herself and her colleague, Michael Turner, and they were just junior members of the Methuen editorial team. And the manuscript came in and they spotted instantly that the adventures were really something special. But Methuen weren't too keen. They felt that um, children reading cartoons wasn't quite the done thing. Mm. And therefore it wouldn't be bought by libraries or schools. But uh, I've got to say the duo fought their corner and they got their way. But unfortunately, they only, um, Methuen only agreed to buy the books if they did the translation for nothing, which is a bit cheeky, isn't it? It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, there was a fabulous review in the Times Literary Review. And then Hergé came to London and did a signing session at Hamley's. And the police had to be called in to control the cl- uh, the crowds. <laughs> and therefore, Methuen were convinced. But I think what is lovely is that Hergé gave... Um, 
Leslie, um, Leslie Lonsdale Cooper and, and Michael Tenner sort of carte blanche to adjust plots and dialogue to make them as accessible as possible to the English. And my favourite character is Captain Haddock. He would, he would never swear, but he'd say things like blistering barnacles and <laughs> slubberdy gullions and things like that. So he's brilliant. I, I do think Tintin is fabulous, don't you? Yes, oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I think I can't remember what Captain Haddock's name was in, in, in French. And then you've got the Thompson twins. Of course, they had different names in the French version. They were versions. DuPont and DuPont or something. something like that, yes. <laughs> and and the stories, I think, were adapted a little bit as well. But but they it was were. great. But I, I'd rather like that, yes. But, you know, with the event at um, Hamley's, it was um, it's a, a Yabu sucks to you. You know, yes. Matthew in board of directors. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> well i was uh, found an interesting uh, tidbit here uh which is to see that the the idea of reading brigades is being explored by government ministers and charities to look at a way at how um literacy can be in- uh, increased or the levels of literacy in our school children. Um, Research shows that less than one in five 11-year-olds will move to secondary school with the required standards of literacy, which is expected. Mm. Now, interestingly, the precedent for this was actually Fidel Castro, who developed a literacy volunteer brigade after he... he, um, successfully had his revolution uh, where more than quarter of a million students were were um enrolled and, and sent out to teach people throughout cuba to read and this is the idea now being taken up here in britain uh, and it's uh, under the commons education committee which is currently working with universities to create similar programs in the uk exeter university is one of the first to to pine this to expand on the idea uh, when helping school children with their reading and it will also contribute to the students in their final degree uh, results well i think that's a great idea because we isn't it just we all need to be able to read yeah, and enjoy yes. reading. It's not a yes. chore, is it? No, it's not. Mm. And it is a surprise. You know, sometimes when when you're reading about historical novels or something, and people say, "Oh yes, I can read," and and it, it's it's almost it's almost shocking, isn't it? Because it's something I've been like, you know, um, the bicycle business. Once you you know that some yes. you know once you've learned that's it. But it's it's a shock that there you know people don't have those skills. In today's in today's in today yes in today yes exactly yeah, yes yeah and it's very important yeah and you need to be able to read to play computer games mm. or just mm. to access news or your mm. favourite music channels or whatever it is everything yeah. involves reading doesn't it and, ju- um, and and just to articulate you know to um, make yourself understood yes absolutely <sighs> and I was Indeed. reading which we will be covering next week actually in slightly more detail that there's a charity supporting um, books into uh, re- for Ukrainian children because oh, right. it's the importance <laughs> of them having some sort of normality um, mm. in their life um, at this tragic time and I think at the very least we can do at the moment is to spotlight and recommend some great examples of um, Ukrainian literature to enjoy. Yes. I think I that's think, a good idea. That's really, really fun thing to to be able to do, and and it does appear that books by Ukrainian authors are flying off the shelves at the moment, as British readers spark a sales surge to support the embattled country. 
Indeed. And one um, uh, respected author, um, uh, Andre Kirkon, has seen a staggering 848% increase in sales of his uh, books, triggering an urgent reprint of his books, which is fantastic for him. Now, um, Kirkon is best known for his novel, which is Death and the Penguin, which I think is a fantastic title. Uh, And it's about an aspiring writer, Victor, who has taken on a job composing obituaries on select powerful figures for a newspaper. Now, of course, they they never get printed as the subjects are still alive. Um, But he, you know, with only his pet penguin mission for company, Victor can't wait for the day when one of his pieces is going to appear in print. Now, at last, his works start to get published following a number of prominent deaths. But to his amazement and horror, he discovers that his editor has all his articles, all his obituaries filed with imminent publication dates. Uh, and Victor becomes implicated in a crime wave. That's such a good story, isn't it's it? It's good, isn't it? Yeah. So then they, to find out, say, crikey, this matter. Oh, but, the, but that's interesting. On this date, he's, ooh, you know. <laughs> Now, the Penguin is an allegory for the state of the Soviet people who have found themselves lost following the collapse of the Soviet Union, which actually is quite prescient because perhaps that allegory can be um, applied today with the poor Russian people who found themselves lost in the current situation. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yes. Um, There is uh, some talk, isn't there, of not reading classic Russian literature. And I think that's just ridiculous. It's not the Russian people who no. are involved. No, exactly. And I, and I, I think it is because there's another little piece later on, which, I, which I'll uh, mention, but I think, yes, you're right. It seems rather rather a strange thing to do to sort of say, oh, well, you know, we won't read that as if, if a past author or a current author is responsible, this is a political event um, and, and is not related to sanctions of, of, of you know, banning um, Russian-made vodka and, and so forth. And it does seem, it's a bit like, you know, toppling of statues and it's just because somebody dislikes... Um, you know, somebody from the past, their history, you know, it's, it's almost saying, oh, well, we, you know, we don't like your literature, but, you know, it, it's not, it, it's not the same thing, is it? No, and I think all great literature talks to the state of being across the world. Exactly, um, absolutely. Yeah. But I'm going to recommend a book which I truly loved when I first read it on publication back in 2005. So that means that there's loads of people out there who might not know this book. And yes. I've got to say, it is brilliant. It is a delight. It's titled A Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian. And <laughs> it's written by the British Ukrainian author, uh, Marina Lewishka, and published by Penguin. And when the book was published, it received masses of critical acclaim. So it won the Bollinger Everyman Prize for comic fiction. It won the Saga Award for wit. It was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for fiction and longlisted for the Booker Prize. So you can see it was critically applauded, um, but also for great awards. Um, And recently hair sales have jumped by 441% just in the past month. So that's Mm. fantastic. So it tells the the hilarious story of two sisters, Vera and Nadiashta, who 
must set aside a lifetime of feuding to save their emigre engineer father from a voluptuous gold Ooh. digger Valentina. Mm. So with her proclivity for green satin underwear and <laughs> boiling the bad cuisine, she will stop at nothing in her pursuit of Western wealth. But the sisters' campaign to oust Valentina and Earth's family secrets, it uncovers 50 years of Europe's darkest history and sends them back to roots they'd much rather forget. And I've just got a little reading from the very mm. first chapter. And Lovely. the first chapter's entitled sort of Two Phone Calls and a Funeral. But <laughs> let's just listen. Um, Two years after my mother died, my father fell in love with a glamorous blonde Ukrainian divorcee. He was 84 and she was 36. She exploded into our lives like a fluffy pink grenade, churning up the murky water, bringing to the surface a sludge of sloughed off memories, giving the family ghosts a kick up the backside. It all started with a phone call. My father's voice, quavering with excitement, crackles down the line. Good news, Nazesda, I'm getting married. I remember the rush of blood to my head. Please let it be a joke. Oh, he's gone bonkers. Oh, you foolish old man. But I don't say any of those things. Oh, that's nice, Papa, I say. Yes, yes, she's coming with her son from Ukraine. Ternopol in Ukraine. Ukraine. He sighs, breathing in the remembered scent of mown hay and cherry blossom. But I catch the distinct synthetic whiff of new Russia. Her name is Valentina, he tells me. But she's more like Venus. Botticelli's Venus rising from waves. Golden hair, charming eyes, superior breasts. When you see her, you will understand. The grown-up me is indulgent. How sweet this last late flowering of love. The daughter, me, is outraged. The traitor, the randy old beast, and our mother barely two years dead. I am angry and curious. I can't wait to see her, this woman who is usurping my mother. She sounds gorgeous. When can I meet her? After marriage, you can meet. I think it might be better if we could meet her first, don't you? Why you want to meet... You not marrying her? He knows something's not quite right, but he thinks he can get away with it. But Papa, have you really thought this through? It seems very sudden. I mean, she must be a lot younger than you. I modulate my voice carefully to conceal any signs of disapproval, like a worldly wiser adult dealing with lovestuck adolescent. 36, she 36 and I'm 84, so that. He pronounces it that. There is a snap in his voice. He has anticipated this question. Well, it's quite an age difference. Now, Vesta, I never thought you would be so bourgeois. He puts the emphasis on the last syllable, war. No, no, he has me on the defensive. It's just that there could be problems. There will be no problems, says Papa. He has anticipated all problems. He has known her for three months. It's a fabulous book. Right. <laughs> Super. It really is very good. <laughs>
Um, now, going back to a little bit of a subject about um, people's sort of knee-jerk reaction, we're not going to um, read Russian literature at the moment. Netflix has put uh, on indefinite hold its adaptation of um, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. Um, and despite moves by some groups um, to create a backlash against Russia's writing over the invasion, sales of classic Russian literature have rocketed. Now, Tom um, Tivnan, who's uh, from the bookseller, uh, was interviewed and he said it makes perfect sense that the public has turned to literature both to support Ukraine and to learn about Russia's often complex past. And I think that's a very valid point. Yes, it is. And that also um, reflects <clears throat> that our bestsellers charts also show that there's a non-fiction interest in in the area mm-hmm. so it's not mm-hmm. just picking up fiction to understand um the history of russia and the soviet union but also mm-hmm. non-fiction and i noticed that um last week uh oliver bluff's new non-fiction book butler to the world uh mm-hmm. popped straight into the uh times um top 10 and right. he's a, a journalist and the book has been billed as the book the oligarchs don't want you to read and ah. it's an unsparing analysis of the rotten heart of the british political business and legal system which shows that how britain became the servant of tycoons tax dodgers kleptocrats and criminals and it's a very timely book because you just read to open the newspapers at the moment and that is a topic that's in many of the papers yes and it's it's um yeah, it's it, 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 it's rather sobering and disappointing to think that you know, as a nation where we seem to to wear our moral superiority um, so well that we could be so busy, you know, shoring up all of these these creatures, you know, yes. um, selling them services, you know, how to dodge uh, paying tax, how to cover this up, and so on. It's yes, yeah, quite disappointing. Yeah. yeah, but on a different note, indeed, <laughs> book lovers. The world round, enjoy a bookshop. They do. And I absolutely do. So we're going to talk about bookshops. And I was struck by how many books we've already covered that could easily fit into this. Yes, indeed. I know. I was thinking, all these ones I want to talk about, (laughs) we've covered them. We have. We're so ahead of the game. (laughs) So we've done things like The Midnight Library by Matt Haig, um, which talks about which which version of your life would you choose if you were able to go back through your life and choose a different option for yourself. Mm, yes, an interesting um, uh, concept, isn't it? And then we we also have The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Ruiz Zafon. Uh, if you remember, this very atmospheric novel built around a literary mystery and also had an incredible library included. And the mystery is around who is Julian Carax and why is someone systematically burning his books? Yeah, fabulous, fabulous book. Mm. Oh, we could have chosen Jenny Colgan's Bookshop on the Corner, which is a lovely tale about a librarian who has spent her life matchmaking people with books and she gets made redundant. So she decides to buy a bookshop bus 
which drives around the Scottish Highlands, and that's oh, lovely. That's a lovely one. Or we could indeed choose one, which the very simple title of The Bookshop, written by Penelope Fitzgerald, uh, which has uh, been turned into a, a film recently. And it's about, um, about someone who is opening a bookshop against polite but firm opposition in a small British town. I don't know why anybody would not want a bookshop I opened know. in their neighbourhood. I know. So there is something about books and bookshops that book lovers can't resist. And Julian, you've probably chosen the most famous and loved bookshop book there is, haven't you? I think I have, Heather. I think I have. I'm, and the book I'm is... jealous you got here before me. <laughs> oh, yes. You see, I can do a turn of speed when I want to. <laughs> Grab the best bits. And that uh, that wonderful book, the much-loved book, is, in fact, 84 Charing Cross Road by Helena Hampf, which was uh, first published in 1970 uh, in New York by a publishing company called Grossman Publishers. And it was published here in Britain by Andre Deutsch in London. And 84 Charing Cross Road is the culmination of a 20-year correspondence between a New York-based freelance writer, uh, Helena Hampf, and Frank Dole, who was the chief buyer at Marks and Company, which was an antiquarian bookseller located at, you've guessed it, 84 Charing Cross Road in London. Now, um, Miss Hamp was searching for some obscure classical volumes, um, along with hard to find British literary works, which she was unable to locate at a a reasonable price um, anywhere in New York. And she came across an advertisement placed by an antiquarian bookshop in London in the Saturday Review of Literature and sought its assistance with her research. That was in 1949, and it was the start of the 20-year transatlantic postal friendship between Helena, Frank Dole, and other members of the bookshop staff. And I've got a little bit of an extract here um, uh, to show how it all began. Perfect. 14 East 95th Street, New York City, October 5th, 1949. To Marks and Company, 84 Charing Cross Road, London, WC2, England. Gentlemen, your ad in the Saturday Review of Literature says that you specialise in out-of-print books. The phrase antiquarian booksellers scares me somewhat as I equate antique with expensive I am a poor writer with an antiquarian taste in books, and all the things I want are impossible to get over here except in very expensive rare editions, or in Barnes and Noble's grimy, marked-up schoolboy copies. I enclose a list of my most pressing problems. If you have clean second-hand copies of any of the books on the list, for no more than five dollars each, will you consider this a purchase order and send them to me? Very truly yours, Helena Hanf, Miss. Marks & Company, Booksellers, 84 Charing Cross Road, London, WC2, 25th of October, 1949. Dear Madam, in reply to your letter of October 5th, we have managed to clear up two-thirds of your problem. The three Hazlitt essays you want are contained in the non-such press edition of his selected essays, and the Stevenson is found in the Virginibus Perisque. We are sending nice copies of both these by book post and we trust they will arrive safely in due course and that you will be pleased with them. Our invoice is enclosed with the books. The Lee Hunt essays are not going to be so easy but we will see if we can find an attractive volume with them all in. We haven't the Latin Bible you describe but we have a Latin New Testament, also a Greek New Testament, ordinary modern editions in cloth binding. Would you like these? Yours faithfully, F.P.D. 
for Marks and Company. New York, November 3rd, 1949. Gentlemen, the books arrived safely. The Stevenson is so fine it embarrasses my orange crate bookshelves. I'm almost afraid to handle such soft vellum and heavy cream-coloured pages. Being used to the dead white paper and stiff cardboardy covers of American books, I never knew a book could be such a joy to the touch. A Britisher whose girl lives upstairs translated the one pound seventeen shillings and sixpence for me and says I owe you five dollars and thirty cents for the two books. I hope he got it right. I enclose a five dollar bill and a single. Please use the seventy cents toward the price of the New Testaments, both of which I want. Please will you translate your prices hereafter. I don't add too well in plain American. I haven't a prayer of ever mastering bilingual arithmetic. Yours, Helena Hamph. P.S. I hope Madam doesn't mean over there what it does here. London. Dear Miss Hamph, your six dollars arrived safely, but we should feel very much easier if you would send your remittances by postal order in future, as this would be quite a bit safer for you than entrusting dollar bills to the mails. We are very happy you like the Stevenson so much. We have sent off the New Testaments with an invoice listing the amount due in both pounds and dollars, and we hope you will be pleased with them. Yours faithfully, FPD for Marks and Company. New York, November 18th, 1949. What kind of black Protestant Bible is this? Kindly inform the Church of England they have loused up the most beautiful prose ever written. Whoever told them to tinker with the Vulgate Latin? They'll burn for it. You mark my words. It's nothing to me. I'm Jewish myself, but I have a Catholic sister-in-law, a Methodist sister-in-law, a whole raft of Presbyterian cousins, through my great-uncle Abraham, who converted, and an aunt who's a Christian science healer, and I like to think none of them would countenance this Anglican Latin Bible if they knew it existed. As it happens, they don't know Latin existed. Well, the hell with it. I've been using my Latin teacher's Vulgate. What I imagine I'll do is just not give it back till you find me one of my own. I enclose $4 to cover the $3.88 due to you. Buy yourself a cup of coffee with the 12 cents. There's no post office near here, and I'm not running all the way down to Rockefeller Plaza to stand in line for a $3.88 money order. If I wait till I get down there for something else, I won't have the $3.88 anymore. I have implicit faith in the US Air Mail and His Majesty's Postal Service. Have you got a copy of Landor's Imaginary Conversations? I think there are several volumes. The one I want is the one with the Greek conversations. If it contains a dialogue between Aesop and Rodope, that'll be the volume I want. Um, as as we heard, it fell um, to Frank to locate um, the books that Helena required. And over the course of the business correspondence, the letters were liberally sprinkled with various topics, ranging from the sermons of uh, the Reverend Dr. John Dunn, Dean of St. Paul's, and Queen Elizabeth, the first favourite priest, to a recipe for Yorkshire pudding. And then they discussed the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. And then it went on to the seasonal progress of the Brooklyn Dodgers. 
years. Uh, not only were the letters exchanged, but also birthday cards were sent, Christmas gifts were, were dispatched. And Helena, being aware of the wartime shortages um, in Britain, would send over food parcels. It's, it was now, a lovely romantic, yes, very it, subtle it, it, friendship, it isn't it? Yes, it was. It was very gentle. And, 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 the, and the, the letters that go back and forth, it, it, it really very, very nice. But... Unfortunately, as is often the case with life, where we think we have plenty of time on our hands, Helena left it too late to come to visit London, um, having postponed her trip in part um, due to financial difficulties, but also um, to an aversion to travel. Um, She did eventually come over in 1971, but by then Frank Dole had died of peritonitis in 1968, and the shop itself was closed very sadly in Mm. December 1970. So when Helena came over in the summer of 71, all she was able to see was was the empty shop at 84 Charing Cross Road. That is tragic, isn't it? It is. It is. It's very sad. Um, however, it isn't all gloom because Helena did um, get to meet many of the members of the former Marks & Company staff, and she had continued to correspond with Frank's widow, Nora, and his daughter, Sheila. And these encounters can be enjoyed in Helena's second London book, Book, the Duchess of Bloomsbury Street. Now, if after reading 84 Charing Cross Road, because of course, listeners, you will go rushing out to buy copies if you haven't read it already. Um, should you wish to pay homage um, to the site, the building still exists, um, though it uh, now forms part of a McDonald's fast food outlet. However, that's, that at least will help you pinpoint the site. And there is a circular brass plaque which marks the location. But this this one, I think, is rather nice. And in another tribute, um, the apartment house in New York uh, in which Helena lived from 1956, I and mean, she moved to this one, which is located at um, 305 East 72nd Street, was renamed Charing Cross House in her honour. Um, Helena herself died in 1997, age 80. Now, as you imagine... Um, of course, as you always like me to put a little bit about film in here, Heather. Absolutely, from time to time. absolutely. Um, and, and I'm sure, as you imagine, such a book um, after it was published became the subject of keen interest for television companies, theatre, radio, and indeed film. And in fact, in 1975, just just four years after Helena's visit to London, the BBC put on 84 Charing Cross Road as a play for today, uh, which had Anne Jackson playing Helena and Frank Finley playing um, Frank. And in the 19 1980s, another TV adaptation was made with Elaine Stritch um, playing um, fantastically Helena, and a radio performance was broadcast in 1976. The theatre production was staged in 1981, and a film starring Anne Bancroft uh, playing Helena, Anthony Hopkins, and Judy Dench was released in 1987. And coincidentally, I spotted not that I I have this on my television, but there was a classic movie channel that actually played 84 Charing Cross Road, the, the Anne Bancroft um, film uh, last week. Oh wow. Yeah. <laughs> not that you watched it no, no no because unfortunately i think it's on i think it's on a on a free view and my tele well, my yeah. television is broken down at the moment but 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 it was an old version of free view so i probably uh-huh. uh, or it may be a paid service for i, I don't know I, but yes it was interesting the coincidence i think the film mm. takes huge liberties with the ending mm. though doesn't it mm. Yes, yeah, I think it does. And but it's like anything, isn't it? It's sort of it's it's twenty years of just 
squashed into an hour and a half. Yes, yes. If, you know, if you're lucky, uh, maybe two hours. But you know, it is. Yeah. And how to how to um, dramatize what is essentially um, uh, you know correspondence. Yeah, um, it's a it's a lovely book. It's I it is a lovely say, book. It's a yes. lovely book. So, yeah. uh, well done for recommending that. Well, thank you. That would have been mine <laughs> <laughs> if I'd have got there first. Oh, is that a bit of book envy there, Heather? <laughs> <laughs> Always. So I've gone totally different, mm-hmm. and I've so this is a book, but it's a non-fiction book. It's a memoir mm-hmm. book about a bookshop. And it's called Books, Baguettes and Bedbooks, The Left Bank World of Shakespeare and Co. Now, of course, Shakespeare and Co. is that very famous bookshop in Paris, English language bookshop mm-hmm. in Paris. Yes. And um, it's a memoir written by Jeremy Mercer and it's published by Orion. And this is, it's enchanting. It's, uh, it's a struggling writer and it's an eccentric Paris bookshop. And that's... Uh, magic formula, I think. Mm. So Shakespeare and Co. and Shakespeare and Company, I'm going to say it was one of the world's most famous bookshops. The original store opened in 1921 and it became known as the haunt of literary greats. So you had people like um, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, George Bernard Shaw, Ezra Pound, Gertrude Stein, James Joyce. That would have been a brilliant bookshop Mm. just to have gone in and just been part of those conversations now sadly the shop was forced to close in 1941 but that wasn't (laughs) yes I wonder why but that wasn't the end of Shakespeare and Co and in 1951 another bookshop with a similar free-thinking ethos opened on the left bank and this time it was called Le Mistral, and it had beds for those of a literary mindset who found themselves down on their luck, which is a lovely idea, sleeping in a bookshop. Mm. And in 1964, it resurrected the name Shakespeare and Co. And again, it became the principal meeting place, um, this time for beatnik poets, such as Allen Ginsberg and uh, William S. Burroughs, uh, through to Henry Miller and Lawrence Durrell. Mm. Um, So it found its way into the heart of the literary establishment as well. And uh, interestingly, today the tradition continues and writers still find their way to this bizarre um, institution and uh, one of them being Jeremy Mercer who's written this book and he had no friends he had no job no money no prospects and so he decided to escape his life in Canada uh, and go to uh, Paris but that thrill of escape soon pulls until he happens to chance upon the fairy tale world of Shakespeare and Co. and is taken into their bosom. So, what follows is his tale of his time there the curious people who came in and went, the realities of being down and out in the city of light, and in particular, his relationship with the beguiling octogenarian owner George. So, let's listen to his introduction to the shop. It was a grey winter Sunday when I came to the bookstore. As had been my habit during that troubled time, I was out walking. There was never a specific destination, merely an accumulation of random turns and city blocks to numb the hours and distract from the problems at hand. 
It was surprisingly easy to forget oneself among the bustling markets and grand boulevards, the manicured parks and marble monuments. On this particular day, a thin drizzle had begun falling early in the afternoon. At first, it was barely enough to wet the wool of a sweater, let alone interrupt the serious business of walking. But later, toward dusk, the skies abruptly thundered and opened into a downpour. Shelter was needed, and from where I'd been caught near the Cathedral of Notre Dame, the yellow and green shop sign could just be glimpsed on the other side of the river. By then, I'd been in Paris a month, long enough to hear vague rumours about the legendary bookstore. I'd been intrigued, of course, and had often meant to visit. Yet as I crossed the bridge, with the wind whipping at my pant legs and umbrellas sprouting around me, these rumours were far from my mind. My only thought was to escape the storm and idle the rainy minutes away. Out in front of the store, a tour group bravely posed for one last round of photographs. They used thick guidebooks to shield their cameras, and their teeth were clenched into chattering smiles. One woman glared from beneath the hood of a rain slicker as her husband twisted a complicated lens. Hurry, she urged. Just hurry. Through the fog of the shop's main window, there could be seen a blur of warm light and moving bodies. To the left stood a narrow wooden door, its green paint wrinkled and chipped. With a faint creak, it swung open to reveal a modest delirium. A glittering chandelier hung from a cracked wooden ceiling beam, while in the corner an obese man squeezed rainwater from his turquoise moo-moo. A horde of customers circled the desk, clamouring for the clerk's attention in a loud mash of languages. And the books, the books were everywhere. They sagged from wooden shelves, spilled from cardboard boxes, teetered in tall piles on tables and chairs, stretched along the windowsill, and taking in this mad scene was a silky black cat. I swear it looked up at me and winked. So from that mayhem of a bookshop, he uh, had a fantastic time and the book is charming. And I've got to say that uh, my husband, used to work for Penguin Books, um, has met uh, George and uh, a very famous uh, eccentric character and um, he used to go and uh, chat to him when he was in Paris because uh, Mike uh, worked for Penguin Books and uh, he remembers um, being given a glass of sherry in a very dirty glass when he would go. (laughs) Which I think was all part of the charm. (laughs) I I think so, yeah. (laughs) Did you ever get to Shakespeare and Co on business? No, I didn't, though I did travel um, um, when I was working in, in, in export, well, still working in export and publishing, but in Europe. Uh, but I was uh, working for a company called Sphere Books, and um, uh, I think their range of books would not quite be the taste of Shakespeare Company. Now, just in case we get um, struck off by the um, by the broadcasting regulator, I will describe uh, Sphere, and, uh, Sphere Books Publishing at that time more as décolleté and derrière. <laughs> I think we all know what that means. <laughs> uh, though, in fact, the abacus list that was been possibly might have might have um, suited their needs, but I think probably they were more to yeah. I think that probably it was a. I, I'm, I'm sure they weren't that snobby, but probably it was you know if you were going to have paperbacks, then it was only going to be Penguin. Um, but I did I did um, 
one of my customers was the Liberi Galignani, right. which is a lovely shop on Rue de Rivoli, um, uh, which was actually just a couple of doors down um, from uh, Angeline's, which is um, a salon de thé. Oh, um, and, and Angeline's did, and I think still do, they make the most superb chocolate, hot chocolate, and they do so by melting chocolate bars. That's the only way. Absolutely. And if you, uh, and it, it, by tradition, if you, um, uh, shops were closed in Paris on a Monday morning and they, uh, interestingly, and they would open. So if you were in Paris on a, uh, on a Monday morning, then you could, you know, write some postcards, have to, and then you go to Galignani in the afternoon. And that was a lovely shop because it was, it was nice and galleried, beautiful, um, wooden, um, bookshelves. And the most charming, lovely buyer was, um, um, Madame Cordier, Jacqueline. Cordier, um, very sh- uh, short lady, and she was absolutely lovely. Uh, always had uh, wonderful suits, to, uh, you know, t- twin suit you know, jacket mm-hmm. and 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 skirt, and and she would uh, chatter in. And I I spoke no French really, and she would chatter in French, and then she would sort of, uh, after you did the uh, two copies, um, and she was lovely. And she'd always take a holiday in La Rochelle. Uh, and she was always a bit snooty about Dan, so don't ever eat sea fish um, down on, 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 in the south. She said, poison you. <laughs> but there is something about foreign bookshops that are always very exotic, aren't they? Yes. Isn't that lovely one in, is it Portugal? Yes, in fact, it's uh, uh, Lelo and Irmao, I think. Um, I think it's called Lelo and Irmao in, in Porto. In Porto, yeah. yes. That is yes. just beautiful, isn't it? It's yeah, it is. It's a Yes, galleried, sweeping staircase, absolutely incredible. I, I had, I, I used to um, travel to Portugal, but in those days we had exclusive distributors, and so they handled the, the sales, and they were based in Lisbon. So I never actually got to Porto. But um, a few years back, I, I happened to um, get introduced very briefly to one of the buyers, a young chap from that shop, because um, Joe Portelli, who's a freelance sales rep, he, he, he. Um, sells into into Portugal and Spain and and uh, around uh, southern Europe and it's one of his customers mm. but i believe it's uh, and i think um it, it it appeared in a harry potter film um yes. i think Yes, uh, and as a result, of course, for the for the bookshop, of course, it 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 put them on the map, so to speak, but in an, a most unwanted way, in that people would just come into the shop and take photographs and leave. So apparently now they charge you. I don't know how much if it's five euros or maybe more, um, which is a, and of course, if you then buy a book, it's then redeemed, you know, redeemed against that. Uh, but but I'm sure they would not want to charge because it must be really very annoying for them to have people tramping around the shop just to gulp. Um, yes. But it does. It's. It's. It, I mean, that's a reason for going to to, to Porto alone. I think. Yeah. Second, of course, is to drink yourself silly overboard. But there we go. <laughs> but going back to the bookshop, <laughs> it's oh, yes. a, it's got a little narrow gauge rail railway where they put all their deliveries that come in oh, from yes, the front right. of the yeah. shop. Yeah. They yeah. land it all in this sort of railway cart, and then it scootles <laughs> down to the back of the shop, which is where their stock room is, which right. is fantastic. <laughs> Oh, lovely, yeah. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's a very ingenious um, approach, very sensible, actually, rather than sort of having to lug or, or put them on trolleys or something. What a wonderful way. Yes. yes. But I don't think, I think sadly they, they don't have a little steam engine. They just push it by hand, I think, don't no, they? No, that is disappointing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, but anyway, you could, you could imagine there's a steam engine. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, we have a competition in the UK, or a, an award anyway, given to um, 
the most beautiful bookshops in in Britain to support independent mm. bookshops. Um, it's a good yes, that's that's very worthwhile. Yeah, and one of one of the ones that always gets uh, mentioned and is Mr B's Book Emporium. Um, and Wh- where's that? In in Bath. Oh, uh, right. I went to to Bath just a couple of weeks ago, and we mm-hmm. popped in. And I've got to say, the people who run the bookshop are so knowledgeable and mm. enthusiastic. Mm. And you sort of, you're walking around, you pick a book and you're walking around with it. And somebody will come up to you and go, oh, I love this one. And then start telling you why it's yeah. so brilliant. And, right, you know, yeah, and do you know yeah. the author? And it's just really fantastic. It's lovely. Yeah. They've got this great big bath in the front window, which oh, is right. just full of books. <laughs> really? Oh, lovely. <laughs> But I, I think something that I think a, 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 a bookseller like that and with the staff level, I, I often equate them, uh, I think they're similar to um, a chemist, aren't they? Where you can go and talk to the pharmacist yes. and say, well, I've got this. And the pharmacist will write, okay, well, you need this ointment or you need this tablet. And it's like a bookshop. You can go in and you could actually start off with, well, I don't really know what I want, but I, what, I have a vague idea. Oh, right. Okay. And if, you've got, if it's a really good bookseller, um, they'll be able to, to, to supply you and recommend or, or prescribe uh, the ideal book for you yes absolutely that that's something that we can do prescriptions yes book prescription yes <laughs> oh yes dr Heather, she's recommended this one <laughs> yes absolutely yes yeah, so i think uh, they they do actually offer um so when my friends got us a christmas present um mm. uh, it sort of is an appointment with them where they they sort of interview you and you tell them what books you enjoy oh. and and things like that and where you are in your life and then they go and recommend um ah. books, books to read um so that's a christmas present you can you can buy yourself um, mm. but it's really charming bookshop um, yeah, has a good. I, I, I have to go to Bath to visit it then. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we're always interested in hearing about your favourite bookshops. Exactly. So this brings us back to you can drop me a line, Julian at River Radio, or Heather at River Radio, and, and and nominate your local bookshop. I think that would be great in the Thames Valley area. I think that would be a wonderful thing to do. Yes, and it doesn't have to be. Um, independent bookshop. It, well, it, yeah, it can be whatever. Well, bookshop. It, it could be a whatever. I mean, it, could be yes. a secondhand bookshop, or it could be an antiquarian yeah, exactly. bookshop. Yes. Mm. Or there's mm. a lovely antiquarian bookshop in Henley called Yunkers, and in fact, I was chatting to them the other day, mm. and um, I think I might get him on for a chat. Actually, he's so interesting. That sounds a good idea. Yeah. Mm. So, well, I hope you're listening because you're going to be roped into a Heather <laughs> interview. <laughs> <laughs> he'll enjoy it no but he has he just had he the most, enjoy it <laughs> he had the most amazing books uh, Did he? yeah absolutely i mean beautiful bindings which i was particularly oh, yes interested yeah in. transfixed um, by those yeah ab- absolutely we're just moving we're painting our um our drawing room at the moment so we had to move a bookcase and of course we have to empty the bookcase and yes. we find all these brilliant books that we haven't seen for, for years well that's the problem isn't it you start that job and let's do it, and then you start oh let's have a look at this book and you sit down and have a look through that one so actually what should take really maybe no more than an hour to do is take you half a day yeah <laughs> but it's a pleasure it's a pleasure it is it is right. i know 
So books that we are being recommended uh, today. Yes, indeed. We should do our roundup. Well, we have the Temple of Books, Magnificent Libraries Around the World by Marianne Julia Strauss, published by Gestalten. We have The Crossing by Manjeet Mann. Then we have Tsunami Girl by Julian Sedgwick and Chia uh, Katsuwada. When the Sky Falls by Phil Earle. And then Sue Divins, uh, Guard Your Heart. Alex Whittle's uh, Cane Warriors. Punching the Air by author Tibi Zabois and poet Dr. Yusuf Salam. Katie Balin's October, October. And then we have what we've decided is our favourite title, Everyone Dies Famous in a Small Town by Bonnie Sue Hitchcock. And those last eight were all uh, Carnegie Prize Young young Reader um, shortlisted titles. Indeed they were. So Adam Kay's This Is Going To Hurt, published by Picador. A Narrow Door by Joanne Harris, published by Orion. Cal Flynn, Islands of Abandonment, Lost in the Post-Human Landscape. Megan Mogg Books by Helen Nickel and Jan Jan Pienkowski, published by Penguin. And Hergé's Adventures of Tintin, published by Egmont. Oliver Bullough's Butler to the World, published by Profile Books. Death and the Penguin by André Kirkon, published by Panther. A Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian by British-Ukrainian author Marina Marina Lewitcher, Lewitcher. Lewitcher. Right. <laughs> 84 Charing Cross Road by Helen Hanf, published by Andre Deutsch. Books, baguettes, and bed, book, bed bugs, the left bank world of Shakespeare and Company by Jeremy Mercer, published by Orion. It's great that you've been joining us today, and don't forget, listen to us live on Wednesdays between 11 and 12.